Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce sitting in the Sydney office with Christy Doran joining from uh, the Northern Beaches today. Uh, a bit of sunshine poking through at Palm Beach on uh, what is a sunny day for Australian rugby uh, at long last after a, a few weeks of, of fairly ordinary results with the Wallabies uh, winning in dramatic fashion, 16-15 over Scotland. Uh, and of course, uh, a game earlier on Saturday, New Zealand uh, holding off uh, a surging Japan at the finish in a game we'll, we'll come to a little bit later. But Christy, um, we'll start at, at Murrayfield, which was, um, you know, a real arm wrestle this game, wasn't it? Uh, as I said, 16-15 won by the Wallabies. Um, didn't play all that well, I don't think. Um but how how do you spin this one? I in my report for ESPN, I thought they were they were incredibly fortunate in the end. Obviously, with Blair Kinghorn missing that late penalty attempt, a very kickable penalty attempt. But how would you sum up their performance? All that matters is that you win, isn't it? That's what Andrew Callaway said earlier in the week. Isn't sports just about high performance, really? In the end, isn't it? And in many ways, I think that's somewhat correct about how you will look back about this match because if they can, the Wallabies, this is managed to kick on and it might not be necessarily against France, but you can win in Italy and then you're you're two and one and then you go into a a match against Ireland where you're probably not expected to win. But I don't think that a Wallabies side will ever fear an Irish team. And then if you can somehow jag that, you never know. You can go into the last test against a Welsh side where you're three and one and historically done very, very well over the years. So I look two, two tries to one to, to Scotland. Um, it probably sums up a little bit about uh, how the match flowed, but at the end of the day, test match rugby is about taking your opportunities, kicking your points, scoreboard pressure. And that's really what the Wallabies managed to do there, isn't it? They managed to stay in the fight, Bernard Foley kicked accurately. And, and, and I find it extraordinary. You look at the returns of Quade Cooper and the returns of Bernard Foley. And one thing that has stood out about the two is, and I haven't done these stats yet, but I'd love to see the kicking percentages of them pre and post leaving Australian rugby because I would suggest much higher. Um, I don't think Bernard Foley's missed a goal. He might have missed one. Quade Cooper, I think, in his return against the Springboks might have been seven or eight from eight on the Gold Coast a bit over a year ago. So it's fascinating. And is that a, a pressure? The shackles broken, mentally refreshed? Who knows? But one of those ones where they will be, you know, Dave Rennie said relief, and, and that is what it will be. He didn't seem particularly thrilled by the outcome. And we'll, we'll kind of dive more into why that was the case in a moment. But he he didn't look happy, did he? At the end of that that match, no, he didn't. He was he was pretty keen to to move on, I think, and um, enjoy the win, obviously for a few hours. But um, I'm sure he'll be refocusing the Wallabies today. Uh, a couple of things you you mentioned there: the uh, wins a win, and also kicking your points. And to me, while it wasn't clearly the strongest teams that either Scotland or Australia can put out, we think about the Wallabies. Uh, massive injury toll and Scotland being affected by their their foreign players, if you like, all those playing in in England and France um, not being available. So you lose Stuart Hogg. Uh, Adam Hastings potentially could have started at 10. Uh, there's a couple of other forwards in there as well. Um, but to me, it kind of had that World Cup knockout, edginess, anxious, anxiety mm. about it. It was really tight, um, heavily contested at the breakdown and um, clearly Wallabies was second best there in the first half when they repeatedly got down inside the Scottish 22. And and I guess this is the big thing that stood out for me is that Dave Rennie keeps on the... If I had a dollar for every time he'd use the word we weren't clinical enough, uh, you know, I'd be a, I'd be a wealthy man, um, even with inflation uh, ripping apart the economy at the moment. But uh, yeah, just the, the fact that they were, they were so badly beaten there, um, as I mentioned, really tight. Um, even the Scots themselves made some handling errors at, at key points. So I think it was Gilchrist maybe charging onto the ball close to the line there at one point. Um, spills with uh, probably just one defender in front of him. So it was a real edgy kind of game from, from both teams of a, that had the feel of a quarterfinal. Um, a bit like their game at, at Twickenham uh, in 2015, admittedly, which had a, a lot more tries and was was a little bit looser, but a real grind for for both teams. And I guess, as you said, if there's the one big thing for Australia to take out of it is that they did hang on, they did grind it out. Obviously, needed Kinghorn's missed penalty attempt, and 
um, a wrap for Nick White for that very crafty uh, restart, getting it out um, uh, on the bounce there. Yeah, and what I like, see only to you, to a Pilotto, obviously dropping a ball which you would have First scored half, had yep. he hung on as well. Look, anyone that was expecting a perfect game there was kidding themselves. That's the reality of it. This is a Wallaby side that is what is it? It was not in the in the test standing stills, I think. Um, anyone thinking that they're world beaters has got to go jump in the lake. But sides, this is a side that should be much better than when they are, where they are. There's enough talent to go to suggest this side can be at least a, a strong quarterfinal contender, perhaps a semi-final. Um, you know, could could jag a semi-final, and you never know come the final. And I, I'm not ruling them out of a, a top four or even a top two spot next year because this is how inconsistent the side is. But there is enough talent there. The questions will come. Well, who who are going to be in the the key positions next year? And to me, we we saw Tate McDermott have a unbelievable opening ten minutes, and in that ten minutes, I think we saw. Uh, a player that can open up opposition defences. And you look how tight defences are this, uh, at the moment. You've got to think about well, who, 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 can, who can open up a defence. And this is a guy that can. And he's proven that for years and years and years. I, I, I think his past needs more work. And, and he Definitely. would acknowledge that. Everyone would acknowledge that. But he was getting really untidy um, ball. And, and that does you know, help uh, increase the pressure, uh, the the lack of ball security, the struggles at the breakdown, the influence that the Scottish back row had on the ball with the jackal. Um, that suggested that the Wallabies forwards and right across the park weren't getting there quick enough, weren't the first there, weren't, um, you know, the, the ball presentation was terrible. Twice Tate McDermott had the ball shot at when he was just about there and, and they, they throw it off the deck. It was a little bit odd, but that also comes from players not playing together and not understanding what time they'll get there. Tate McDermott wasn't slow to the breakdown. The past, as, as I've already touched upon, needs more work, but he was he was getting there quick enough. It's just the, the Wallabies were so pressured at the breakdown that they were getting agitated and perhaps jumpy there. Um, you know, we, we saw Bernard Foley struggle at times, but he the percentage play, more often than not, he, he executed well, I think. Um, but we saw balls get dropped by Parsami, by Kellaway. Once again, Parsami hasn't played in a couple of tests. McDermott's played 46 minutes coming off the bench, hasn't started this year. So I think the important thing going forward is continuity. And Dave Rennie's pre-match plans of, um, of rotating the nines, I think, is absolutely staggering. If he's considering that still at this late stage, what is he doing? Because... We've seen Nick White start, I think, in seven of the opening nine tests. Um, Jake Corden starting the last of two of the Bledisloe Cup. We don't need to find out more about what those nines present. We know what those nines present. What does Tate McDermott do? You know, he always makes the, the defender the, standing by the rack either side looking at him. And, and that should actually give Bernard Foley more time because... The defenders on either side of the rack will have to look at Tate rather than Bernard. So some big selection calls going forward. Um, not the perfect game by any stretch of the imagination, but you, you bank the win and now a free shot against France. You go to Paris and you're not expected to win. Yeah, there's no doubt Tate's pass needs work. I think back to the Blair Kinghorn try, which he towed through uh, very skillfully, uh, one right and one left, showing off his... His football skills there played a no doubt a lot in the Edinburgh playground, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but Tate McDermott, uh, that started with Tate McDermott's pass from the back of that scrum, which was a solid scrum, it was a perfect platform. He put it too far out in front of uh, Hunter Paisami. It was down around his shins, and that set in motion the the sequence of bad passes that put the pressure on on Bernard Foley, who then tried to catch and pass in the one motion and and just dropped it cold. So yeah, uh, but otherwise I agree with you. Tate was he was busy. Um, he opened them up virtually in that second or third minute there and that really long opening exchange, I think it was, um, it was to start it the was match. breathtaking, wasn't it? Um, really enjoyed that. Uh, beautiful little break. He got outside um, in the, the defence in the midfield, only scrambled by Kinghorn by the bootlaces on another occasion. So, 
You're right. There's definitely something there, uh, but there's got to be massive work goes into his pass. He, he needs to be doing extras every day for mine on on that because it's not at the standard of of Nick White's. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be hugely important moving forward. Another player, or well, certainly the player who really caught my eye, on, I thought he was best on ground for the Wallabies was Nick Frost. Um, a real um, moment uh, in his career, I think, uh, was excellent. The line out, picked off a, at least one Scottish ball, maybe two. Uh, topped the tackle count with 18 from 18. Um, showed good hands in the lead up to James Slipper's try, combining with with Caden Neville, who was also um, had a, a busy, a really strong game too. So, uh, given the the uncertainty, I guess the the injury run that Australia have had at lock, this was a a really strong game from from Nick Frost, wasn't it? To saying really, I guess repaying the the trust and the belief that the the Wallabies had in him earlier in the year when they they were so keen to get him to backflip on that Japanese deal. Um, probably at that time, he was, he was more a, a player regarded for the, I guess his work in the loose. He's really, he's an athlete. You know, we know about his athletics pedigree and he could have played basketball, I think in a, a couple of other sports. Um, he's got that speed around the ground and um, a, a wonderful support player, but this was really about the nuts and bolts of a locks role, his performance on the weekend. Yeah, you're not wrong. Look, we're going to come to and touch upon talent identification later on, but, how the heck the Wallabies almost let this guy go and Rugby Australia almost let this guy go? Well, is, and the, the is, fact that I guess he went to New Zealand to start with, which may have, you know, turned out to help his career. Well, yeah, because he's he's learning under Scott Robertson and alongside Sam Whitelock. But I found it ridiculous. This guy was being considered that he's a post-2023 World Cup option. That Yes, you're in the frame, but are you now? No, but... That was that was mind blowing because a lot of people and, and ourselves included were going, this guy's an absolute gun. And and I, I'm thrilled that Dan McKellar was the person that started questioning Nick Frost earlier in the year when he must have seen some shifts and said, Nick, is this the right decision? Are you really wanting to go? Um, I think you're an option this year. And and clearly Dan McKellar is a Wallaby's assistant, so maybe those words land a bit, you know, a bit harder. Um, he was he was great. He's got a start, I think, against France next week. And it's really interesting that Eddie Jones often goes with young players. They can only play two or three matches before you have to bring them back a notch because sometimes, you know, the pressure, back-to-back performance, consistency, that's not something that players generally um, nail. Um so whether or not Dave considers, okay, let's let's take Nick back to the bench um, or, or give him a, a week off at some point, I wouldn't do it now because Nick Nick Frost should be young enough. He, sh- um, he, he, he should be reasonably confident. And I, I would be having Will Skelton come straight into the pack against the French because I think he knows the French rugby. He's yep. the sort of bloke that they might fear a bit he's going to give him a lot of muscle and grunt um maybe a nick frost in the second half with half an hour to go is not a bad option but i'd like to see him how he goes alongside a skelt and then you're going to have a jed holloway at six anyway who's gives them a, a great line out option we know rob valentini's used in the in the line out so you don't need four line out options um skelton i imagine would be able to lift most people higher and quicker than most so um That'll be interesting to see how the selection unfolds with the type five next week um, against the French. And, and that may include a Taniela Tupo as well, because um, we saw aspects of his game, which were encouraging. I don't think it was something to jump over the moon about his match on the weekend, particularly his late decision to try to get hands on the ball and, and win a penalty. That wasn't the right option, but no. But he, he's another that when you're taking on a French side in Paris, when you're expected to lose, these are the decisions that you go, you know what, we're going to push it and we're going to see if we can somehow jag a win and we're going to see if we can put, deliver a real statement on the international stage against perhaps the World Cup favourites. Uh, before we move on completely from from this game, uh, just a word, Christy, on the yellow card, I guess the clean out um, to uh, the Scottish uh, player. I've uh, just had a momentary lapse in my head of who that is. Glenn Young. Yeah, um, Glenn Young. The, yeah. the clean out on, on Tate 
McDermott there um, about 16 minutes, I think it was, into the second half. Um, clearly a, a really genuine try-scoring opportunity for the Scots. Tate gets back, gets on, gets over the ball. Um, and Young coming through, um, as you are with a, with a chasing player, when there is a break in this situation, um, enters the rucket at, at full tilt, catches him flush across the chops um, with uh, what um, referee Luke Pierce judged to be the bicep rather than the shoulder. Now, I found this ruling um, confusing, uh, to put it mildly, I guess, that um, how, um, given there's no actual delineation in the laws around uh, the various parts of the arm, uh, shoulder, bicep, forearm, etc. Um, I thought head contact was was head contact and head contact with force and coming from distance was head contact with force coming from distance, which to me um, equaled a, a red card. So I was certainly surprised to see that um, downgraded to a yellow, sorry, mitigated down to a yellow. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Jackal when we bring up Brody Retallick's um, red cards uh, in Tokyo there. But um, did you see the the incident uh, differently to me. Did you agree with Luke Pierce? Um, how, how did you? Well, well Sam, you haven't necessarily told us. Do you think it's yellow or red? It was a red card for me, and I agree uh, completely with what Morgan Turanui was saying in commentary for for Stan Sport. Yeah, I often agree with Morgan, unfortunately, but um, I thought a red card, and I thought red card immediately. This is a guy that's come from speed. It's dangerous. It's it's reckless. Um, I think it was Tim Horan who said, "Oh." Well, What's he supposed to do? Well, we know what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to have really good technique coming into a situation like that. And fortunately, when you're late to the ruck, you really put yourself at danger because a, a bloke's head will go over it. And, yeah, I, I was confused because I, I think world rugby needs to come out and go, well, I think this is a world rugby decision. This is a world rugby call that has spoken to the doctors and said, well, where are the most dangerous parts to get hit by? And it's generally head on head or shoulder. Um, places like the bicep, bicep and the, you know, the, 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 car, um, the legs, the thighs or whatever, if you, if you get hit there, it's not as bad. Apparently, with the medical research, it's, it's the really hard parts of the body which can be more dangerous. Um, but... You know, this was straight across the head from 30 metres out. Yeah. It was it seemed an absolute no-brainer, didn't it? And, um, you know, they're the sorts of – and this is a Northern Hemisphere side where, generally speaking, you see severe, harsh punishments. Um, yeah, red card every day of the week, I, I thought. Um, it was a little bit strange, but good on Tate McDermott for getting over the ball because we've seen – Crucial play, play, crucial play. A crucial play. And we've seen players at times go, okay, are we going to be able to slow the ruck down? Is it the right option? That was the right option to go down. And hopefully Tate's all right. And you know, like he, he looked okay. He didn't seem particularly groggy, did he? Um, so let's hope from a concussion HIA perspective. I'm not sure if he failed it. I don't know if they said in the commentary whether or not he did. Didn't mention it, no, but he was certainly substituted then with, with Nick White coming on. Yeah, and you could probably understand that substitute anyway. I thought that was going to be coming either a few minutes earlier or it turns out to be at that point in time because of the, the head knock. But Nick did provide tempo, did provide pace, and we know that he's got a real crisp pass. The, the question I would ask is, is that almost Nick White's preferred um, position coming off the bench? I've always thought he's offered a hell of a lot coming off the bench. I think he adds great tempo. And he almost doesn't. You know, half an hour, it's a completely different role coming off the bench. And I just recall back to the 2019 World Cup and even off the bench in 2015 against the All Blacks when he scores that great try yep. in Sydney, he injects himself off the pay, off the bench and he often, his running game is better. Um, very hard to start a game at nine. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens there going forward. Before we leave and park the Wallabies, I want to get... Would you have any changes and what changes would you have leading to this first test? I think there'd be there'd be few, uh, if any, Christy. Um, I didn't think Tom Banks was particularly strong on his return um, at fullback. Uh, that might be the temptation to, to potentially throw uh, Jock Campbell in there for a start this weekend. It would be a huge call given uh, you know this uh, the quality of this French team and and certainly how much they like to kick the ball. Um, Dave Rennie mentioned it uh, in his post-match pressure on Saturday night, saying that they kick a lot away, kick a lot 
kick away a lot of ball, got there in the end. Um, but that also creates opportunities on on the counter. So um, could be a good opportunity for Jock. I, Tom just looked a, a little bit off the pace for me. Um, I know he's had those those couple of games in with Australia A, uh, but has otherwise missed a, a chunk of footy. Um, great to see Michael Hooper back. Um, I thought he looked pretty much like the Michael Hooper of old, apart from the fact that he he probably thought he was still captain, uh, as did a couple of other Wallabies there on occasion. I think I heard Luke Pearce say, um, "Just as a few captains out here today, James." Uh, so plenty of chat. So maybe Hoops just needs to uh, to watch that one, or he might find himself. And the Wallabies did get March back there for back chat on one occasion as well. Um, look, I'd probably be tempted to give Lalakai Fakedi a run at 12 over, over Hunter. I thought Hunter was was reasonably um, disappointing there uh, in the back line. Um, I thought Fakedi was, was certainly quite good in in Melbourne, uh, less of an impact obviously in Auckland in the Bledisloe because uh, it was off early with an, with an injury. Um, so yeah, but certainly not wholesale changes, Christy, um, I guess. You know, number six is is the other one. Um, does did you keep Jed Holloway there? He was he was pretty good um, alongside both Frost and and Caden Neville, wasn't wasn't he? I thought the the three of them worked really well together um, in those middle portions of the field and, and got through a lot of work. So yeah, um, maybe one or two there, Paisami and Banks, and and yeah, I'm still on the fence again about Tate McDermott just from his passing perspective, but I do see merit in him starting around that big French pack. And it is a big French pack early on in the game um, just to, to see if he can catch a, a few of those big forwards uh, or bigger forwards with that, that really uh, jinking right and left footstep that he has. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating one. I think the Paisami one almost, I see in the same sort of lens as the Tate McDermott where he's not played a hell of a lot. Um, and there was one or two moments, but I think he adds punch and against it. A French side that's pretty big. I think, yep. I think continuity of selection is going to be pretty important. And I wouldn't be bringing Jock Campbell in for Tom Banks. I think this is a game where um, continuity of selection, you could see the benefit of it. And Banks hasn't played in a long time with the Wallabies. We know that he has for Australia A, but has he played alongside Tate McDermott and Bernard Foley and Hunter Bysami? Absolutely no, he hasn't. So um, that's really important. And I think you might almost see a stagnation if, if a Jock Campbell comes in. He, I don't think he even touched the ball when he came on in the last no. 14 minutes. And, and that's, I think, predominantly because Tom Wright was getting a lot of the ball kicked to him. But I, I, I think if I'm making a few changes, it's against Italy where I'm bringing maybe a Campbell in to start at fullback and I might be giving Noel or CEO the opportunity to start at 10 in a test like that, but I'm keeping it really simple. I'm probably actually not having Campbell on the bench next week because I don't think it necessarily adds all that much to have a specialist 10 and a specialist fullback on the bench. Um, Banks clearly had that one embarrassing moment where he drops the ball over the line and it wasn't an easy take, but it's one that he would take nine times out of 10. Um, Playing in front of a really big, hostile French crowd, it's an intimidating environment. I wouldn't necessarily think that wholesale changes there no. is, the, is the right option. I, I, I'm keeping it really similar, perhaps the entire same forward pack with the exception of a, a skeleton coming in. There's only a handful of tests. He's probably not going to play that test against Wales. We need to find out whether or not he can cut the Masters at, at international level. Um, and and yeah, as it's already hinted with the with the back line, I'm I'm making very few changes. Thought Tom Wright was pretty solid, um, and and I might just on the back on on the on the reserves have a mark. No one need to ask you that. Maybe is on in the um, the the back replacement because I think he can he can play on the wings. He's a natural winger, whereas Jock Campbell is not. Tom Banks isn't a natural winger. You really, if you're going to sub, you're subbing them for each other. And a Callaway, if you need to, can shift to fullback. Um, and we've seen at times Tom Wright jump in there too. Not that I'm suggesting that that should happen. So that that they're the, the couple of minor changes that I would make. Yeah, fascinating to see uh, just where Dave Rennie lands on that later this week. Um, there's given indications they want to learn more about uh, the group of players that they've got there. So it wouldn't surprise to see certainly. Um, a few changes come in uh, or maybe just even a, a tweaking 
of the bench. Um, all right, uh, Tokyo, Christy, uh, 38-31, uh, the All Blacks won uh, with a late penalty goal uh, just to really, um, I guess, put a bit of gloss on the scoreline. Um, skipped out to a, a quite a handy lead early on. Um, really looked like it was, you know, could be a bit of a, a blowout um, there in Japan. Uh, but the Brave Blossoms really rallied well, came back. Um, never probably looked like winning the match, I guess, apart from when they really did get inside there for those final uh, get within three points, sorry, four points there um, with that late try that was a little bit debatable. But um, it's hard not to really like what went on with this game in its entirety. Uh, full house at the new Tokyo Olympic Stadium, which was meant to be ready for the 2019 World Cup, of course. Construction delays meant that wasn't the case. Um, and it would have probably be one of the first, you know, big events in that stadium given uh, with a crowd actually rather because it was, we think back to the Olympics, you were over there. Um, I'm sure you spent time in that stadium. Um, and unfortunately, because of COVID, it was deserted, wasn't it? So um, yeah. great to see uh, a couple of things on the, the Japanese crowd, I think, which we we learned during the World Cup in 2019, which perhaps we've forgotten since, is that they they all wear their jerseys. The red and white is, is just beautiful in the stands. And they all hang back. The other thing that stood out for me, watching the post-game via Stan Sport, but broadcast by... Um, Sky Sport New Zealand clearly uh, was that they all hang around and wait for the, the presentations and the interviews and you know unlike here in Australia and probably just about every everywhere else in the world is that as soon as the the hooter sounds you know people can't wait to to rush to the exits um, even if they you know some of them probably have, have left beforehand if their team's getting a thrashing but um, and then to tie it all together a really strong or certainly a great fight back from Japan and something we discussed at this juncture last year when the Wallabies went to um, it might have been Yokohama on that occasion, um, but uh, or maybe it was just the old Tokyo Stadium um, where they did hold games during the World Cup. That um, you know, where are Japan at in terms of their future? Uh, the Rugby Championship, um, while it was you know a little bit, I, I think we all agreed was revived by the competitiveness of it this year. Um, if we don't bring Japan in, certainly say from twenty twenty four or twenty twenty five. Um, we're just kicking this can down the road, aren't we? That they this team clearly needs top level rugby and and more of it. Um, and sure, they you know they lost the two the series two one to Australia, but they were without a, a few players in that one to Australia A rather. This is a pretty good showing against New Zealand, and surely must stack up in the column for yes. Let's bring Japan into the rugby championship. Absolutely, and it's a must, and it's essential. And I think we will see this sooner rather than later because if if the majority, and I say majority, perhaps not the majority, but how we feel that these World Rugby meetings will continue and play out over the next month is that they're looking towards a global calendar. And if a global calendar gets up and running, we're likely to see you know, what might could be a, a nation's championship at some point in time. And that would mean that there would need to be, a, you know, if it's 12 team, 12 nations, six and the six nations clearly during the first half of the year. And then at some point, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the rugby championship already with four nations, potentially the inclusion of the, the Japanese five or, or the Fijian six. And there we go. It all starts to sound pretty rosy, but whether or not that get up, gets up and running, this is a no-brainer. This is a decision that should be done sooner rather than later. It should happen immediately from 2024. It might be problematic in a World Cup year, but this is an absolute must. Um, every uh, We know that the Japanese have been competitive for years. It will help their development. I, I actually feel like they could progress quicker than the Argentinians because we have a, a strong Japanese competition which is playing week in week out um we know that the, the panasonic wild knights the sutton tory um the um the kabotas um these are these are teams that are have internationals littered throughout their squads and, and stronger squads in many cases than some of the super rugby sides so how we how we uh not promoting this when it's one of the biggest economies in the world is is mind-blowing. Um, it needs to happen ASAP, and I would be surprised if we don't hear more on that over the next month. Yeah, well, uh, clearly, you know, rugby is a game that is going through some um, some financial issues in some parts of the world, and 
Um, we look to the English Premiership, and mind you, their setup is is unique in that it's um, you know basically uh, rich club owners, and you know there's there's no um, central contracting there with with England like there is here in Australia and, and New Zealand. Um, going a little bit away from where I was trying to get to, but the game is in need of new revenue streams, clearly. Um, and you know we've got this whole market there in Japan. Um, no doubt COVID has, has been an issue. It's set things back. Um, clearly the, the top league, I think in 2020 was, was abandoned after, after four rounds, there was more difficulties last year, but this year they, they got through um, and you listen to guys as we did throughout the season on, on press conference put on by the, the top league around um, the Aussies and the Kiwis and the South Africans playing there. They, they are genuine in their remarks that this competition is improving all the time. Um, and that, uh, you know, it's 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 the physicality is going up in it as well. It's probably not um, the same as as Super Rugby at this point, but um, there's some great rugby being played over there, and a lot of these Japanese players are are getting some some really good exposure. We think about a guy like um, Jimeno who came down and spent that season with the Highlanders. I think he, that was hugely beneficial for him. Has gone back. He was sensational for Japan on on Saturday, and we're going to come to hit the big incident involving him and Brady Retallick in a moment, but. Um, it's it's I know the top league have, have got designs on a bit of a post super rugby um, cross border competition as well. There's a provincial element that comes into it, and I know there is there is disconnect there between the top league and the Japan Rugby Football Union as well. So th- there's clearly some ducks that they have to get in a row. But if you Sansa and we hear a lot about Sansa's strategic planning, and obviously we've got South Africa out there, you know, in and in and out, of, depending on which day of the week it is, but um clearly uh they i think they've they've got the runs on the board now they, they've proven that they're a team that, that can mix it and i'm sure in the first couple of seasons you'd think they'd probably go down to new zealand and they might get beaten by 45 or 50 but that happens to the wallabies too and, and argentina and south africa were belted what 56 there and 56 nil i think in northland there a few years ago so it can happen and, to and, a, and at ellis park i'm pretty sure as well and can happen can happen to absolutely anyone but if we don't get this happening in the next few years then as i said before we're just kicking the can down the road we're delaying something that we all know is going to happen at some point so why not bite the bullet and, and get on with it oh great and uh, there's nothing that more i can add for the moment other than that i think it would add a, some breathe some new life into this into this rugby championship because it's always been Let's be honest, pretty dull. There's, it, there's not been that much to get excited about. It doesn't have the history that that the Six Nations or previously the Five Nations have. It doesn't have the atmosphere. Um, the Japanese culture is a really fascinating one. You go to test matches, you go to matches there. It's a very respectful, it's a different crowd. Um, I think it, it it needs to be done immediately. And just a bit of drama. I think about the final day drama you get in the Six Nations, right? Imagine mm. South Africa ha- having to go to, let's bring Fiji into it, having to go to, to Suva on a, you know, a humid Saturday afternoon where, and to get a bonus point, you know, just to, to perhaps lift the trophy or equally, you know, the All Blacks having to go to Buenos Aires or Mendoza or any of the other cities that, that host rugby. Wallabies going to, to Japan, to Tokyo. On, on the final day needing, you know, um, a bonus point win or even just a win to, to create that, that narrative and that drama, I think, um, you know, is, is something that the, uh, the rugby championship desperately needs and something to bring it on par uh, closer to the, what the, I guess the atmosphere and the intensity that we get in the six nations. And there's, um, and, and there's no reason why you can't still then just have a second Bledisloe match afterwards as well. Absolutely. So, you know, your five, your five games and then you, you, your additional six for a rug, uh, for, for a Bledisloe. The other red card, or oh, sorry, the, the red card from the weekend, um, Brady Retallick for his clean out on Jimeno. Um, again, I had few arguments with it. Um, it was shoulder contact this time, shoulder, not bicep. Um, clearly uh, straight onto Jimeno's head um, at force. Um, and I thought was correctly uh, ruled a red card uh, on that occasion. Um, but I'm just going to jump back to the Scotland uh, incident quickly. And, and I guess bring in this whole idea around the Jack or Christie. And we saw it with, with the Bundy RK um, that uh, well, while playing for Connor a few weeks ago, I think against the Stormers there, um, his clean out that earned a, a red card. And I think it was about an eight week ban um, mm. in the end. And um, progressive rugby, if, you, if you're if you on Twitter, go and check them out. They've got some ideas about how the, the game should be played into the future. And they're, 
they're, um, I guess, in favour or leading the push to um, to ban the jackal. And so it was interesting not just to see um, Gregor Townsend bring it up in an interview with, with Ian McGeek and I think in the Telegraph before Saturday night, but then given the events for for um, the, the clean out on McDermott there, as we mentioned, um, I'll just read you uh, this from, from Gregor uh, in the post-match press conference about that incident. I quote, that's the risk and reward of the game. I personally believe the Jackal should be taken out. Too many injuries on the Jackal. Too much risk on where you take someone out. We have to win races to contact. We're encouraging players to sprint to win that race because if you don't, you're not going to be able to move that Jackaler. If someone is sprinting, he's not going to slow down a yard before the ruck in enough time. We said to Glenn, it's a world-class bit of play or a yellow card. There's nothing you can change about it unless you decide not to go to the ruck and let the player win the ball. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but personally, I think we need to get the jackal out. Now, given that, um, Retalix, um, who was probably didn't come from the same distance um, as Young, um, and then you think back to Arkey, who did come from quite a distance and at some force. I mean, are they onto something here? Is Townsend onto something? Uh, the jackal you and I were talking about before coming, coming on to air today, uh, trying to work out when it started to to really take a such a place in the game, and that the the role, the core role of the seven was to to get on the ball. Apart from you know where previously it was just a you know I guess another loose forward um, to really get the hands on the ball. You think about I guess George Smith and Richie McCall being pioneers, uh, Heinrich Brousseau for the the Springboks into Sean O'Brien and Sam Warburton, all these guys who came through and that the number seven suddenly became pretty much the most important position outside of the number 10 um, or right on, on par with, you know, a tight head prop in the scrum. But um, is, is does Townsend have a point there? Is it something that we're going to get to, a, uh, I guess, a juncture in the game where there are too many injuries as much as we love a turnover ball um, you probably don't see that many turnover balls. You see more penalties for for holding on via the seven. So are we taking that as the counter-attacking element that comes from turnover ball? Is that perhaps not as prominent as it used to be? Um, I'm just kicking around some ideas here, mate. Uh, I, but I guess to the central question, uh, is the jackal on borrowed time in, in world rugby? Yeah, well, and you could have continued that conversation with the Bismarck Duplessis into a... Um... You know, the, uh, the current hooker who skates in my mind for South Africa at the moment. Um, um, but he's, he's one of the best of the world. Um, oh, I, a great question. Um, you, you know, I think Gregor Townsend could be onto something because you look at how, how dangerous it is. Um, we know how, uh, is, is it policed often, how it should be policed? The referees, it's already so difficult for them, but. You know, is their hands on the ground? Are they supporting their body weight? Has he come in, you know, from the side or all these sorts of things? Uh, we saw the incident with with Darcy Swain um, on on Quint Tapia. You know, does that happen? And um, you know, Ben Ryan's comments from two or three years ago, yep. um, where he oh, might have described it as, uh, well, maybe I don't know if it was the Wild Wild West or that was. It was, that was, I think, was also into relation with with player agents and picking and choosing players and going and, and taking them out to um to, to France. But I, I think um, I think he's onto something, and, and and that is the ruck and how it's policed is is one of the more frustrating elements of the game for, for many people. It stifles it, uh, and we know how dangerous it, it, it can be, and we know that they're all bigger, faster, stronger. So is that going to change? And, and Gregor Townsend's right. It's either going to be a bit of a world-class player or it's going to end up in a yellow card or, or at least a penalty. So, yeah, I, I think I think you could be right. I don't think it would be an overnight change, but it only probably needs one or two more injuries, and we'll see that because how subjective it is and how, you know, the policing of it from yellow cards to red cards to penalties to is it elbows? Is it, is it bicep? Is it shoulder? It's more TMO interjections at the very least. Um, so I think I think he could be onto something. I think, you know, looking forward, um, there's obviously a lot of, you know, tweaks that could be made around the breakdown. And, and you're right to say it is so subjective a lot of the time in, in terms of the refereeing on and around the, the body, body weight, um, whether the arms are, 
or on the ground. Um, I, I guess you think back to years gone by, or certainly you know in the in the 90s, it was probably more about the forwards getting getting over the ball, um, you know, winning that space, that collision space, rather than actually attacking the ball um, on its own. So clearly some. Uh, something to ponder you are right around. Uh, and I think back to when um, David Pocock walked into the, the press conference at the 2015 world cup. I'm not sure if it was before the Scotland quarterfinal or perhaps Argentina in the semifinal. And he had two of the biggest black eyes you have ever seen in your life. Mm. And that was clearly for a bloke who, you know, put his ball, put his head over the ball rather um, probably more than most uh, that just, uh, just, you know, exemplified the the physical toll that these these sevens in particular take. And can you imagine if we had, you know, I know the TMO, certainly the neck roll was the big focus of the 2015 World Cup, but I'm sure David Pocock copped a few around the chops there that must have gone unnoticed uh, and probably would be yellow or red cards today. So it's it's moving in a direction. Um, the, the RK one, if you didn't see it from a few weeks ago, was, was particularly frightening. Um, it was a, a massive collision and I think pretty hard to argue with his eight-week ban. So we'll be interested to see um, uh, Brody Retallick, what his ban is, and also Young. Um, Retallick has been referred to the independent uh, world rugby uh, judiciary, and we'll probably hear more about Young later today or, or this afternoon. Um, Christy, what about on this this Japanese side? Uh, clearly, there's some ta- talent that they've naturalised in, in recent times. Um, Warner Dern's the big... Uh, lock out of New Zealand there, uh, had the charge down and sprinted away 40 metres to to score. But the one from an Australian perspective we're going to talk about, um, Dylan Riley uh, has really come to prominence under Robbie Deans at Panasonic Wild Knights, um, played, I think it was two or three games for Brisbane City in the, in the NRC back a few years ago, um, finds his way to Japan uh, and is now clearly going to be a, a real focal point for this Japanese attack at next year's World Cup and through just one of the great offloads that you're ever likely to see, a, a flick pass, um, having cut back in from the touchline to find little halfback uh, Angare, I think, for the try there. It was just a, probably the try of the match. Um, just a phenomenal offload. He had a wonderful game, Riley. And it's something we spoke about earlier with Nick Frost and how he was almost lost at least for a couple of years. Um, Riley has clearly been lost altogether to Australian rugby um, and raises that question again is that... Um, you know, clearly you can't keep them all. And, and Mac Hansen is another one we've spoken about on this podcast is doing wonderful things with Connaught and, and Islands. But um, it, it's not a great look when guys like this pop up and, and play such uh, great games at, at test, level, test level Australians, but not playing for Australia. Yeah. And this is, it's not just an issue for lose, losing players overseas. It's losing players to rugby league as well as the AFL. And and that's the really crucial one. What's the talent identification for guys that are 14, 15, 16, 17? And, and we know that players don't always, they're not, um, we've seen with Jock Campbell and his uh, journey to the Wallabies, um, someone that was playing second 15 and wasn't necessarily ever thought of as in a Queensland young representative side. Players do develop at different stages of their career and then sometimes that's physically and sometimes it's just with their desire to play. Billy Meeks is probably another one that um, you know had to go overseas to, to get a crack before coming back in Super Rugby and he was pretty established, wasn't he? So I think the disappointing one for me still is the Mac Hansons because I, I really thought this is a guy that's got skills that plays in multiple positions, which is quick. And this isn't Dylan Riley per se, but they're the players you can't afford to lose, I don't think. It needed to be much more done to, to keep that guy in Australian rugby. The forward thinking, the planning needed to take place. And I think there's also an element of sometimes you've got to give players opportunities. And that might mean that you bench players like a Tom Banks in the instance of Matt Hansen. You put Tom Banks on the bench there for one or two games and you allow a player whose preferred position might be fullback or could be wing or whatever it might be. And you just allow them to grow and develop and you take a more holistic approach around developing talent because it's so, so crucial now. Um, And that is why having the right people in charge at a rugby Australia level or, you know, your director of rugby, your general manager is so important across the five super rugby franchises. 
point that we're needing more and more. We know that there's player agents that go around and watch schoolboy rugby from time to time. That more and more players or people with the right intellect, the right idea of knowing what it takes is so important. And and fair play to Dylan and I. Like congratulations. There wouldn't be a single person that would would um, criticise him. It, it is also interesting that we we question inclusion of a player like a Jack Dempsey to play for Scotland, um, but we don't necessarily always um, have the same ill feeling towards perhaps players that go on to play for Japan. I suppose the difference with Jack is that he had played as recently as the 2019 World Cup for the Wallabies and played 14 tests. So that's probably the the clear out and out difference on, on that occasion. Yeah, I think so. You're right. There's, there's no issue with players who haven't played at test level before, but um, certainly Jack running on there um, in the uh, in the Navy blue jersey uh, took some getting used to. Uh, righto, mate. I think that's he looks pretty- good in the blue though. Tell you that. It made his eyes pop. You happy with that? <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, all right. We're going to finish off today with a little bit of uh, Wallaroos and, and Women's Rugby World Cup. And yes, perfect timing. Brittany Mitchell has joined us here at the ESPN uh, offices in Sydney um, for, uh, I guess, a wrap up of, of the Wallaroos uh, performance through through the tournament, finishing in the quarterfinal defeat 41 5 to, to England yesterday. Britt, um, we'll, we'll start with them before moving into your experiences uh, over there a few weeks ago and you're heading back for the semis and final uh, from this weekend coming. Um, but I guess it finished how we probably expected it would for the Wallaroos. Um, horrific conditions there in Whangarei yesterday. It was torrential rain, um, probably limited their ability to, to play the kind of game that um, they showed in the the opening match against New Zealand, that really attacking style of play, although they did, they did score a wonderful try, um, their only try of the game by finished off by M. Chancellor. But um, I, I think we saw this result coming, uh, just the way that England were able to put the squeeze on them through the set piece, uh, the continuity that they played with. Um, pretty much just, a, I, I guess, uh, you know, um, exemplifies the, the difference between um, amateur or semi-professional and, and a complete professional team because England are that... Uh, a wonderful professional unit. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't think many people were expecting, um, you know, a, a result, a, a boil over really, especially when um, you saw the the weather that was uh, the, the, the absolute bucketing down rain. Um, it, it was probably, uh, it probably did benefit the Wallaroos in a sense that, that the England couldn't unleash their back line as much as they would have liked to. There was a, a fair few um, fumbled balls and, and just a bit of a mess in there. But leading into the game, there was so much emphasis on how important the forward battle would be. Uh, England, just their scrum has just been so dominant throughout this tournament. And we saw it in the first 10 or so minutes of the game. I think they they won like three or four scrum penalties and were just pushing the Wallaroos straight off the ball and, and that first try to Sarah Hunter was just straight under the post. They just pushed the Wallaroos five metres out straight straight down and um, that was their first point. So it's, um, at the end of the day, I don't think the Wallaroos or anyone really should be disappointed with what they produced this tournament. Yes, there was, uh, you, you would have wanted to see a bit more um, improvement when it came to the set piece, especially the line out and their discipline. It was a, it wasn't great to see that they were the most carded team throughout the tournament. I think they got a, at least one yellow in every match. There was two reds uh, in the Scotland game. So those things they will be looked at, and I'm sure they will address those things. Those are issues that you really can't go into a World Cup tournament and expect to get very far if, if you're going to be a player down in every match. In saying that, what we did see was that they have so much talent. And you mentioned that, you know, they're playing teams that are professional. You play the Black Ferns, England. When you're playing a team that is that at that level, it's you're already, as Anne Chancellor said after the Black, Black Ferns game, you're already a step back. You've got a hand tied behind your back when you're going in with the, the preparation that they had. It, and so what we did see was that we do have so much talent and it is almost heartening to think, okay, 
in two, three, five, ten years, where will this squad go uh, when they do start to get the investment that they deserve? We saw um, the end, Tarita, BB, Unearth pre the World Cup, that last um, Blackburn's test before the World Cup and then through this World Cup. And she's just an exceptional talent that has just lifted that team. And then you've got the likes of Grace Hamilton at eight, who was just a massive ball carrier for the team throughout the tournament. And um, just, it's just amazing to see what these girls could produce under the, the conditions that they were under. Um, but yeah, I guess at the end of the day is um, where can you go if there's no investment in this? If you've got teams like England, France, Italy, um, the Black Ferns, uh, Scotland and Wales are starting to get money into their program. If you've got all that going on and then you're a Wallaroos team that are amateur, semi-professional, your satellite training in the lead up to a World Cup, um, you're all separated, uh, you're doing Zoom team chats. Um, it, it's a huge difference and it's something that, you know, going into a, a massive tournament, uh, it, it does play a big role. But uh, like we said, the tournament quarterfinal was their goal and they, and they reached it. And I think a lot of them will be really proud with, with what they've done and, and the game that they the game that they were managed, managing to get out of the park. As you said, that that try yesterday against England where M Chancellor got over the line just exemplified the what they could do once they got the ball, once the, the handling was there, just the offloads that they had. Um, Liz Partu, just that dart through the middle of the offload to Grace Hamilton who kept the, the ball rolling and, and just spread it around wide to M Chancellor to go over the line. It's, um, yeah, it was an awesome try and it should go down as, perhaps one of the best that we saw in the whole tournament. It was, yeah, a great, great moment in the game. Christy, an interesting postscript uh, was the discussion on on Stan Sport around what are the next steps for this Wallaroos program and and certainly women's rugby uh, in Australia in in general. Um, we know you've been following the the private equity piece uh, the last few months um, and where that's at. We feel like it's it's edging closer. Um, it's just about before the board, I think. Um, so where, and that's the women's portion of that is clearly going to be a, you know, a, a huge deal to be struck because uh, as Britt mentioned there, this, this team has shown that, um, they've got some, some wonderful skills and, um, uh, the ability to play a real up-tempo game, um, and, and play well, despite, you know, having spent only sparing few weeks together this season and how they improved from the, the Pacific nations into the, the O'Reilly cup series in, in, into the world cup. So, um, they need more games. They need more time together. And but the only thing that, that can happen is if um, you know the investment, as she said, goes into it. What what are you expecting will be the makeup, I guess, of of the portion of the women's rugby that comes with this private equity deal? Yeah, great question. And I'm not actually sure if if well, I don't think any of that's public yet. But they were originally thinking around twelve and a half percent to sell off, and, and now that's looking more closer to fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, and what that means is there will likely be in the first quarter of next year between 100 and $200 million that comes into the game. How they use that is the million-dollar question. And I think, look, we've got to be brutally frank about what have, what have been the priorities um, leading up to COVID, what were the priorities in the one or two years during that COVID period and what, what are the priorities coming out of it? And it was pretty clear that there wasn't a huge investment in women's rugby other than sevens. And you look at sevens, you look Charlotte Kelsey, from my understanding, is the best paid, highest paid player across both programs. That tells you that there is uh, the importance of having women's rugby, but also when you've got a, a, a star like that, they've got to be adequately remunerated during the COVID period it was it was not only obvious but it's been found out that the game was very very close to going under so how did you keep the game afloat and and clearly the men's game was targeted particularly the wallabies which which powers and generates the game but going forward there is a clear understanding that 
there's huge, huge missed uh, over the last 10, 20 years, there's been huge missed opportunities to power the game through women's rugby, but they're an essential component of the game going forward. And having a 29 World Cup will, will like, you know, we've got seven years to get the game firing up until that point in time. I know that there is a there's a, a strategy that is a thought that a lot of money needs to be put aside, needs to be invested, needs to be put into some form of of of, of bank to kind of uh, make sure that they've got um, a solid base going forward that we don't ever see the game nearly fall over and crumble over again. But there there will be money. From my understanding, it's not just going to be thrown. There's not going to be a huge just lump sum that's going to be immediately given to the women's game and go that spend it because they know that doing that and can quickly lose lose money. We saw that with the men's game in the early two thousands where maybe it wasn't the right priorities weren't quite there. But they they're at the moment looking about what is the best structure going forward. How do you get the best bang for your buck? Um, so I don't have it a sum at the moment but I know that there is that is a clear focus a clear focus is the grassroots how much maybe it's a quarter of that I'm not quite sure but um, you imagine that there will be going forward a, a real plan and I think we'll hear about that come next March and, and I think that's the time and that's what we should really be judging I think the administration at the moment there are and it must be said some optics which I don't think have been great in recent months have we seen the rugby show CEO, the chairman, um, the president uh, at enough matches. I know that you know, Hamish McLennan's clearly on this spring tour. Um, I think he was at Murrayfield on the weekend. I'm not sure he where was, any, yeah. I'm not sure where any Marinos was, whether or not he was there. I know that the rugby show president um, was at the game, the Wallaroos game on the weekend. Those sorts of things shouldn't go unnoticed. Um, but I think going forward, we we need to judge and hold this administration to account and that will be shown over the next two years about what is the plan what is the strategy going forward Britt what about your experiences of the tournament over there on on the opening weekend um was a sellout at Eden Park although I think that the official crowd was somewhere around about 35 36,000 in the end uh, still clearly uh was it was a great day for for the women's game um how have you seen it I guess for the past the past couple of weeks sorry as well um have you enjoyed it what's what's stood out for you um where's the standard at and and i guess um you know we've got now got new zealand and france and, and england and canada in the far in the the semi-finals clearly the four best teams i think have won through so that's you know a, a tick in the the box for the tournament uh in terms of how it's been run and um but j- just talk us through how you how you've seen things the last few weeks yeah that um opening week that opening weekend uh at eden park was huge it was great to see so many people from so many different places coming in. You had fans from, you know, Fiji, England. Uh, I th- saw some USA fans in there. Obviously, the Blackburns fans. You had South African, uh, Australian. So it was a, a real melt- melting pot of different fan bases coming together. And it was just fantastic, you know, all the different colours when Fiji were on the field. You had the blue wigs coming out, the Fiji flag. South Africa on the field against France and there was a big there was this moment at the end of the the first game and France had had to battle their way through the first half and finally got the ascendancy got the win in the end and there was a a big patch of French fans in the corner of of one of the um, stands and the end of the game the the players all together came together and you know did their congratulations shook hands and then the French pack walked over to the fan base and you know we're waving and, and saying thanks for coming along and those are the moments that you know those girls would have loved to see that that they're on the other side of the world they may have questioned how many supporters they get there and, and you see a good big group of you know 20 or 30 supporters have come in maybe they're based in New Zealand maybe they came across but it just shows that there is a huge support base um growing for women's rugby and it, and it was great to see all that and all the different, yeah, just all the different fan bases. I saw it, I landed, I think, the Thursday morning and Thursday, Friday, walking around town in, in Auckland and I saw jerseys coming out from everywhere, some USA fans and, and things like that. So it, it's really great. And uh, the game itself was so entertaining. It was just so much fun to watch. 
I think a lot of people get bogged down in the men's game of, you know, the, the, the kicking jewels and, and like the, all these different minute battles that go on and, and people might see them as maybe a little boring. And some of those things are kind of taken away out of the women's game. The, the kicking jewel isn't much of a, a thing. Um, and so it is ball in play a lot of the time. I, I know World Rugby came out with stats last week that, that showed that ball in play uh, was more, was I think 36 minutes, 37 minutes of ball in play in, in, throughout this tournament on average compared to I think it was 32 in the rugby championship. So <clears throat> there's all, all those little things that are coming out that are showing that the women's game itself, it's a different style of game. It's more fun. The ball gets moved around. The girls are trying different things. It may, some people may say, well, it's not as fast as the men's, but that doesn't matter because the women are playing their own style. They're playing their own way. And Ruby Tui's pointed out so many times throughout this tournament that they want to prove that women's rugby is its own product, that it's its own entertainment. And you don't need to be, you know, you can come in, you just enjoy it. It's not meant to, it's, it's, you don't need to make those comparisons about between the men's and the women's. The women's game is its own thing. It's its own entertainment. And I, and I definitely saw that that first weekend, you know, watching England, Fiji. And I think I, I made a comment the first few minutes. I don't think England had ever played a team like Fiji before. They were a bit stunned with these big rampaging girls coming up to them and you know it's not that one that one-on-one -on -one tackle you might need to put in another two or three girls and it was so entertaining to see Fiji on that world stage and they produced some great tries it was I mean and then it's that thing at the end of the day obviously not professional but when they won that fir their first game ever at a world cup against South Africa huge and it should be applauded and and people should remember that moment and South Africa themselves coming in and doing what they could throughout the tournament. And you mentioned Canada being in the, in the quarter, the quarterfinals and now in the semis. We have to remember that Canada and USA are amateur. They don't have any funding. They had to fund themselves to go over there. So to see that a team has managed to get their way into the semifinal and will do a decent job against England will be um, hard to put away. It's pretty, it's incredible to see. But it, yeah, I think the tournament has really grown massively. And I think if you just go on social media, if you go on Twitter, if you go anywhere, you can see how much support there is for this tournament and how much, how much excitement there has been for this game. World Rugby said at the start of the tournament, in the lead into the tournament, they wanted to unearth the stars of now and and the stars for, for the future. And I think that's exactly what they've done. Ruby Tui has obviously been a well-known name for a while, her sevens exploits, but she's done so much work this World Cup to prove, again, just how exciting it is. And I think she's a very good spokesperson in the sense that she's been pushing this game to, put, to bring it towards the future. And I think a lot of young girls are going to come away from this tournament and pick up that rugby ball and go find their local club and see that that's where they could be in the future. Talking to so many Wallaroos girls in the lead up to the tournament, all their stories were similar. You know, growing up, they watched rugby, but they didn't know they could play it. They didn't realise that there was an Australian team, the Wallaroos, that they could, they could go play for. They didn't know that that was a thing um, until they watched the, the 2016 Olympics and they saw the sevens team win that gold medal. And I think that, is similar to what this World Cup has done for the next generation of, of young girls. They've seen this team, they see what they can do, they know that there's potential for them in the future, that they can represent the country and, you know, in 10 years' time, they'll be getting paid for it. So what this tournament has done, not just for the players that have played, but what the future, what it's done for the future, I think um, we're not going to see that for a few years to come, but I, I think it'll be immeasurable, really, what they've, what they've managed to produce. Yeah, uh, hard to see it not as uh, anything but a, a raging success so far. Interesting to see what happens with the, the Wallaroos moving forward next year. Of course, Super Rugby W, sorry, Super W would be back. Uh, is there a potential to get some crossover games with the Super Rugby or Picky games as well? Where's the Pacific Four Nations at? Um, so a lot of a lot of balls in the air, I guess, for for the Wallaroos moving forward and, and women's rugby in in this country. But if they've uh, they've shown us one thing in the past few weeks is that they deserve 
coverage. They deserve um, investment and um, let's hope they get it in the not too distant future. Uh, all right, team. I think it's a pretty good wrap. That's bang on about the hour today. So um, for a fairly uh, lighter week of actual rugby action, it was um, uh, plenty to talk about. Nonetheless, uh, Britt, thanks for joining. Enjoy uh, the semis and the final over there in, in Auckland over the next uh, 10 days or so. Uh, should be a fascinating decider, particularly uh, if we finish up with New Zealand v England. Uh, who's your money on? Uh, I don't think anyone could go away from England. I think they're just too slick. They're just so polished. Their forward pack is so good. And then once the ball goes out the back, it's, they're hard to stop. I think the the big game this weekend will be the Black Ferns France game and who comes out on top there 12 months ago the Black Ferns got absolutely demolished by France so I think this will be a it's the first real test for the Black Ferns apart from that third, first 30 minutes against the Wallaroos so I'm not sure who I'm putting my money on it might be the Black Ferns that get over the line purely because they're at home um, but yeah it It'll be a massive seven days that Saturday to the, to the grand final will be will be huge. And I, I can't wait to go see it all. Absolutely. And Christy, uh, Wallabies, how close will they get to France? Great question. Uh, it's hard to quite know without seeing all the teams. I know the French are missing a few. I, I, I think within 12 points, we've seen that the Wallaby side has historically measured up pretty well against the French. Um yeah, I, I think within 12, but you never know. It's a, it's a funny game, rugby, and if they get their selection right, I think uh, it could be a really competitive opening half. Yeah, can't wait. Plenty of footy to watch coming up uh, this weekend, so tune in across the board. Uh, as ever, team, uh, leave us a review, uh, give us a rating on Spotify, Google Pods, Apple Pods, etc. I'd uh, love to hear what you think uh, moving forward or any particular topics you'd like us to discuss. Um, otherwise, we'll look forward to speaking to you again in seven days' time. See ya.